Welcome to episode 11 of the TTM Academy podcast. I'm your co-host, Philippe Tran, and I'm here today in Salt Lake City recording a new episode for the TTM Academy podcast. What is the TTM Academy? The Penn TTM Academy is University of Pennsylvania's multidisciplinary initiative to improve quality of care following cardiac arrest. The TTM Academy is a comprehensive educational platform developed by the Center of Resuscitation Science at University of Pennsylvania, designed to provide training in all aspects of post-cardiac arrest care, including targeted temperature management therapies, or TTM. You can check us out at www.penttm.com, where you can find all episodes of this podcast and much more, including online training courses, live courses, and workshops. You can also follow us on Twitter at PennTTM, where you can send us your questions or ideas for future topics you would like us to discuss. Today, we're going to be discussing the use of venoarterial extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, aka VA ECMO, during cardiac arrest resuscitation. And for this episode, I am joined by Joseph Tona, a good friend and colleague, emergency physician, intensivist, and researcher who is an expert and field leader in the use of mechanical circulatory support and specifically the use of ECMO in cardiac arrest. Dr. Joe Tona is an assistant professor at the University of Utah with appointments in the divisions of cardiothoracic surgery and emergency medicine. Joe was a leading author of a landmark paper actually published a few years ago now, in 2016, in resuscitation. And the paper was titled Practice Characteristics of Emergency Department Extracorporeal Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation, ECPR, programs in the United States. Even though this was in 2016, I think uh, some of the data that they presented here was is really relevant and gives us a good sense in regards to what the current state of data practice is. We recorded this interview in a parking lot in Salt Lake City, hence the occasional ambient background noise. Joe was on his way to present uh, the ELSA conference in Austin. So the first thing that I, I wanted to ask Joe is how common is the use of eCPR in the United States? Thanks a lot, Felipe. Uh, it's a pleasure being here. So we were uh, pretty excited to do this study. We, um, we thought it was a necessary first step uh, as uh, a group of us who were interested in eCPR in the United States. Um, while eCPR had been done, you know, first described back in the 70s and, and done um, at a number of centers in the United States as early as the 90s, um, it just never really got a lot of traction uh, until a couple years ago. And, and so at the time that we did this study, we had gotten together as a group of uh, resuscitationists and um, physicians who were interested in the use of eCPR. And uh, we wanted to just understand uh, what was being done with eCPR in the United States and how programs were actually run and managed because this was early enough that most, we didn't think many programs existed. And uh, so we wanted to understand the programs that did exist. Were they successful? And how did they actually uh, con um, construct themselves? And so um, we contacted centers uh, through the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, ELSO, um, the international organization that uh, collects data uh, on these patients. And we contacted the uh, centers that had submitted a case of adult eCPR to uh, the ELSO registry. And we then asked them uh, further questions to drill down and to identify uh, centers that had actually done this in the emergency department. So among the 99 centers that had submitted adult eCPR cases at the time, we had um, 
uh, 70 centers that responded, and among those 70 centers, 36 centers had actually performed eCPR in the emergency department. And it's important to understand that you know eCPR as a therapy after cardiac arrest is something that is you know routinely done um, in the cardiac surgery world and is done in other parts of the hospital. And and the extension to the emergency department, although originally actually described in the emergency department in the 70s, um, is really kind of a, a new uh, environment for it. And so. Um, what we found uh, in the study, uh, a couple of the interesting findings were that, you know, the majority of programs uh, were new. They, um, you know, they had only been around for a couple years. Uh, we also interestingly found that the majority of programs were not formalized. They, they did eCPR, but it was uh, more haphazard. There wasn't an actual protocol for how to do it. Only 20% um, of the programs actually had uh, uh, a formal program. Um, excuse me, uh, it was uh, 38% uh, had a formal program. Uh, and as I said, the majority of programs were, um, were less than uh, five years old. Um, and most of the programs, additionally, we found hadn't done very many cases. Um, there were very few programs that had done more than a patient every other month, uh, more than six patients a year. Uh, and so it was a pretty uh, infrequent event uh, at that time. Um, one of the other interesting things, uh, which is probably relevant, is that the majority of programs, 88%, had a functioning ICU-based ECMO program that they then extended to the emergency department. It wasn't a standalone ED ECMO program um, or eCPR program. So those were, those were some of the interesting things that we found. Uh, I guess probably one of the other uh, interesting thing is, is most of them had a protocolized process for resuscitation uh, to help simplify the number of things that had to be done during the eCPR process. Uh, and so they actually had kind of a, a protocol that would stand alone. Somebody would run that protocol in addition to the person uh, doing the ECMO cannulation. So one of the other interesting things that um, this study reported was that 60% of programs that um, reported doing eCPR had three or less cases per year. As we think about this intervention from a systems perspective, among this already relatively small number of centers capable of doing eCPR in the United States, the actual numbers of cases performed um, in many of them seems fairly low. So we think of other therapies like bypass surgery or PCIs, and we know that there are guidelines and certain defined minimum numbers that center uh, must have in order to be proficient, to uh, remain accredited in some cases as a center that performs such procedure or intervention. So I wonder what is the number of cases that a center performing eCPR should have? Is there such number? Do we know that? Is this something that we need to be thinking about as this intervention gains popularity and expands in the United States and internationally? That's a really important question that um, doesn't have a great answer at this time. Um, we know from a lot of different procedural-based fields and from procedures themselves that in many situations there is a uh, association between improved outcomes and volume of procedure done, frequency of procedure done. Um, that relationship is established within the adult venoarterial ECMO world in an uh, important paper in the Blue Journal by Ryan Barbaro a couple years ago um, that within the adult VA ECMO population established that relationship. Though uh, that relationship is not clearly established for other populations and other modalities of ECMO 
or extracorporeal life support. It would seem logical that if uh, improved, increased numbers of procedures uh, was associated with improved survival outcomes or improved survival of those uh, procedures or outcomes from those procedures, that uh, this would extrapolate to eCPR2, but that's not currently established. My sense clinically is that absolutely, that the more you do, the better you get. And I think that probably the best anecdote of that uh, is uh, the University of Minnesota and Dimitri Yiannopoulos and Jason Bartos up there are doing incredible volumes uh, in the United States right now for uh, ED or really cath lab in their situation based uh, eCPR and have really uh, remarkable outcomes. Um, and I think that speaks to a number of things, one of which is the volume of the procedure that they're doing up there. The third practical aspect um, I was interested in asking Joe about is something the, uh, they mentioned in their study in regards to the structure of uh, these eCPR programs, and specifically the element of having cardiothoracic surgery and cardiac ICU available in the hospital. We know from the experience reported by several centers that emergency physicians and intensivists in some cases are performing the cannulation and initiation of the ECMO. Um, but as we know, the cannulation and initiation of the pump itself um, is just a small fraction of the patient's complicated care uh, well supported on ECMO. So do programs uh, that are contemplating initiating eCPR um, in the hospitals require to have a cardiac surgery team uh, to be available, to be part of the core structure of an eCPR program? Well, I don't think that you need cardiothoracic surgery per se, but what you have to understand is that the actual cannulation for ECMO is the smallest part of the process, or a small part of the process, that a well-functioning eCPR program and good patient care around eCPR involves many things that happen before cannulation, patient identification, high-quality CPR, transport. In addition, it involves a lot of post-arrest care. So, you know, it, it goes, uh, it, maybe it needs to be said that, you know, many patients who we put on eCPR, are, it's for refractory cardiac arrest. And so to have refractory cardiac arrest, um, some patients have profound hypoxemia leading to that or profound neurologic injury. Um, but there are other patients who have refractory cardiac arrest because they have refractory coronary ischemia. And those are the patients that most eCPR programs are trying to identify, at least within the adult population. It's refractory coronary ischemia often manifested by ventricular fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia. And those patients, eCPR is uh, simply getting every part of their body blood pressure with the exception of the occluded coronary artery. And so what needs to happen then, in my opinion, is, is the patient needs to go to the cath lab. And there was a, a great paper uh, guideline out of circulation discussing this in the last year, um, that these patients need you know, to be treated like STEMIs uh, and go to the cath lab. And in addition to that, then the next part is that they are going to require days and days of really high-quality intensive care unit care with multimodality treatment to address myocardial recovery, uh, percutaneous venting potentially of their uh, and unloading of their left ventricle, 
They're going to need neurocritical care because many of these patients are going to have uh, neurologic injury. Um, and they're going to need really multimodality care from nursing and therapy. Um, uh, and they're going to need specialists who can deal with vascular complications and limb complications from the actual cannulation itself, which are a, uh, a known complication of you know, emergent femoral access venoarterial ECMO. And so there's a lot of things that need to happen. Now, does that have to be done by a cardiac surgeon? Probably not. But it, at some point, in many cases, is going to need a surgeon who is capable of dealing with uh, vascular complications and limb complications. That might be a vascular surgeon. That might be a general surgeon. Um, and... Um, and there needs to be enough multimodality care and availability that you, no one should be doing, managing these patients in isolation. And while an individual patient may not require a cardiac surgeon, there are certainly going to be patients who do require it, who don't have myocardial recovery, and then have an inability to you know, mechanistically wean from the ECMO circuit. And, and that then will require a decision about uh, termination of care or transition to some sort of durable mechanical circulatory support device. Um, so no, you don't need a cardiac surgeon, but you're going to want one, and you're definitely going to need a lot of people involved, uh, one of which is going to be a surgeon. Lastly, I wanted to um, ask Joe, as someone who has successfully implemented a program at University of Utah, now I think running for um, almost five years, to provide the audience with his perspective on what are the key aspects to successfully design and implement an ED ECMO program. Joe was the lead author of another paper um, titled Development and Implementation of a Comprehensive Multidisciplinary Emergency Department Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation Program. This was published in 2017 in Annals of Emergency Medicine, and um, the citation will be available in the show notes for full review. In this paper, they comprehensively describe the experience of developing an ECPR program to serve as a template for other institutions that are interested in building their own ED ECMO programs. So, Joe, please give us your perspective and the experience uh, that you guys reported in this implementation paper. So the, probably the first thing to uh, ask yourself if you're thinking of starting an eCPR program is, do you have the patient volume? Is the prevalence of the disease high enough that you're going to be able to maintain your team's skills? And uh, as I said, most programs start by trying to target adult patients, uh, adult eCPR programs, adult patients who have refractory cardiac arrest. And so you need to probably look at your in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest volume and identify what percentage of patients fit that criteria. There are other factors associated inconsistently in studies with survival after eCPR, some of which include time to cannulation, initial rhythm, age of the patient. These are things that uh, are inconsistently associated with survival and you're going to want to look at within your program. In addition to that, you're going to want to know that you're going to want to see if you have a high-functioning, high-volume ECMO program. eCPR is um, a type of ECMO and ECMO is the care of the ECMO patients is complex and uh, nuanced. And so it is, in my opinion, much better for patient care to expand an extant 
ECMO program to the emergency department or to the eCPR patient rather than to develop this de novo. So that's probably the second question I would ask myself. The, the third then is, if we're going to do this, do I have multidisciplinary buy-in? Because uh, as we talk about in the, in the annals paper, um, a high-functioning eCPR program is ideally one in, in which multiple uh, specialties are involved because there are multiple complications and aspects to care that are likely to be encountered over the course of the eCPR patient's care, in addition to the fact that that care is going to extend over days, if not weeks. And so the more uh, specialties uh, that can be brought to the table that can provide something of benefit to the patient, the better that patient's going to do. If you're doing this in isolation and you don't have supportive colleagues, it's not going to go well for the patient. And the best example is, is um, as I said, there are often vascular complications from these patients. And if you don't have somebody who can deal with those vascular complications or also you have, say, vascular surgeons who do not want to deal with your complications, you're just going to engender ill will within your institution. Uh, and so I think the first thing is to really understand, do we have everybody at the table and are they all in agreement that this is the right thing to do? And then I also think it's important to look at the financial aspects of it because these patients, um, it is an expensive and complicated process to put somebody on ECMO. And if the institution, and many of them will die. So, you know, right now the best survival we're seeing internationally is 50%. So at one out of every two patients is going to die. And so you, your institution needs to say, you know, do we actually support this? Um, is it okay to do this if half of the patients are going to die? Um, so those are some of the first things I would, I would ask myself if I was thinking of starting one. There you go. I want to thank Joe Tona for joining me and his entire team at University of Utah, uh, the Department of Emergency Medicine, for having me last week. I encourage our listeners to review both of his papers cited here, available in the show notes. That is all for this week from Salt Lake City. On behalf of the team at the TTM Academy, this is Felipe Tran signing off. Bye-bye. <laughs>